For the week of April 18th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 537, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the Faded Glory Awards, I'm Michael Giltz. And I, that's right, Sperling. I'm at the Faded Glory Awards, and we're about to have the big final award of the night. It's Best Former Empire, and the winner is, yes, yet again for the uh, what is this, the 75th year in a row? It is the British Empire, the former British Empire. They do a wonderful job of being a faded glory, former empire. If you saw the funeral over the weekend, pomp, circumstance, magnificence, you would think they still were the empire on which the sun never set. Well-deserved. 1946 to today, an uninterrupted win for the British Empire. Very exciting news here, Spurley. Well, uh, a couple things. Uh, I had no idea where you were headed with that. Uh, but that said, uh, you get to say this kind of stuff because you are a British subject. You were born That is correct. In- I, was, I was born in Bermuda. I am a British subject, colonial born, which used to include Half the people in the world, now it's vanishingly few. That's true. So, And, and um, you're referring very, to the funeral of, of Prince Philip, correct? That That yes. is correct. I'm pretty sure yes. everyone caught that. The husband of Queen Elizabeth II, my mom loved it. She approved mightily. And, you know, we got good news for, it's sad news for the Queen, but good news for The Bachelor. The Bachelor franchise was getting some grief for not being on point and up to date in its in its uh, depiction and, and casting of people of color. But now they've gotten a lucky break. It turns out they've already had a gay bachelor. So isn't that great? They're way ahead of the curve on against other people. But wait so a second. Was he not- gay? I mean, I'm, I'm going to say he this was wrong. Gay. But, you are indeed. Yes. But uh, was he out? I suppose when he was on the bachelor. Well, of course not. They would not okay. have cast I, well, him I on the bachelor. I don't watch. I yes. purposefully don't watch the bachelor. Well, of course, but Colton Underwood was on The Bachelor. He was the virgin bachelor, a guy who was a virgin. And that was a big plot point. Oh, he hasn't had sex yet. Is that romantic? Is that sweet? Is that weird? And he wrote a memoir about it and how people always teased him and said they thought he was gay, but he just wanted to wait until, oh, no, actually, he is gay. So (laughs) good, good. Good for him. Everybody has their own journey. He's not that old. He's in his 20s. He's finally accepted himself. That's great. And he's doing a series for Netflix, a documentary series about coming out and being gay. So it's like, Colton, I'm not sure that's the best way to find yourself with the cameras rolling. I know you did on The Bachelor, and now you're going to do it again. It's like, uh, all right. Well, I hope that works out for him. But it's good to know that he's, you know, more happy and at peace with himself and can, you know, talk about this now. I think everybody gets a series on Netflix. You get a series on Netflix, and you get a series on Netflix. And, you know, I well, we're going to. Mm-hmm. I wonder whenever I make that joke whether people actually understand the Oprah Winfrey reference. Good Lord, of course they do. Okay. Well, tell us. As I was going to say, you know, Colton gets to speak for himself. Good for him. You get to speak for Showbiz Sandbox. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are on the edge of our seats waiting for the Oscars. And by edge of our seats, for us, it's not at the Dolby Theater. We are actually on the edge of our seats in front of our Zoom conference call because that's... (laughs) That's of the world. Yeah. Well, we've got animation, we've got editing, costume, and cinematography awards. But most of all, we have the exclusive results from the 46th annual ira awards that's right big news also coming from the world of social justice the powerhouse producer scott rudin facing some fallout after the hollywood reporter story reminded everyone what a vicious mean boss he has been for decades i don't know if it reminded it it just kind of publicized it because we all 
we all kind of knew. That's what I'm saying. We all yeah. knew it was yeah. a, it was well known. He talked about it, yeah. and now he's like, mm, I guess I wasn't that nice. Mm, I was mean. Uh, on Inside Baseball, we'll tackle the many issues surrounding Asian American depictions in the media. Our guest this week is Porn Sock Pichichote, the creator of a brand new comic called The Good Asian. It's set in San Francisco's Chinatown in 1936 and reimagines classic film noir with a Chinese-American hero. Think Easy Rollins, but from Hawaii. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. I assume Comscore had some notes sent around to people, but I didn't get it this week, Sperling. Oh, you know, the secret yeah, that, stuff, but there you go. That would be my, my fault, sorry. We pulled out info from everywhere we could, and the number one movie around the world is Detective Conan, The Scarlet Bullet, the latest in the franchise of The Kid Detective. It grossed $38 million in its opening week. Close behind it was Godzilla vs. Kong, $32 million it made this week. It's going to soon pass the $400 million mark. Normally... For a movie that costs probably about $200 million, that's not great news uh, as it slows down. But in this day and age, it's a huge win. It's now the top-grossing film in North America in the pandemic era. At number three, Around the World is Sister, that Chinese drama. It made another $11 million. It's at $111 million worldwide. I'm sure that's an auspicious number. At four is Mortal Kombat, which hasn't opened up here yet, but it's opened up around the world. It made $8 million this week, and it's at just about $20 million. Tom and Jerry is chugging along. That's at $106 million. August Never Ends is our second new release on the chart. It's a Chinese drama, I think, though I had trouble tracking down what some of these new movies were this week. I don't know why, but it opened up to about $6 million. That's the same amount of money that Bob Odenkirk's thriller Nobody made this week, $6 million worldwide. It's at $35 million and counting. Another old friend, we've had some reissues, of course, this year, like Avatar. That's at the bottom of the list where it made another $1 million. It's at $2 billion. $846 million. And also in China and playing, I think, at Alamo Draft Houses is The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, or that played a week or two ago. It made $4 million this week in China. I believe that one is at $892 million worldwide. I would have loved to see that reissue, and I was hoping it would come to my local theaters. I guess that Alamo Draft House release wasn't exclusive. However, <laughs> Thank God they're just open. So I guess give them all the exclusives they can. The Unholy made another $3 million, as did Raya and the Last Dragon. Then uh, that Monkey King reboot that we heard about. I have a more accurate title. I believe it's called Monkey King Reborn. Poor reviews, but it made another $2 million. It's at $14 million and counting. The 11th chapter, which as... Sperling said, is the sequel to the 10th chapter, he guesses. That made $2 million, and that's also at $10 million. Warrior of China, that somehow was not on our radar last week. That opened up last week, I believe. It made another $2 million this week. It's a very modest player. It's at $6 million and counting, as is in uh, another new release. It's a Chinese film, I think. It's called The Wings of Songs, or maybe The Wings of Song. I haven't a clue what it's about. I think it grossed about a $1 million. Maybe it opened up last week. Maybe not. If you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 
7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. And I should mention, we do have some listener email at the end of this show. Great. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm especially interested for people who have links to India's box office. I go to Bollywood Hungama, which has been a really good source of information on new releases. But after those you know, a, a couple movies in late March, it stopped, and I haven't had any well, movies that's, opening that's up. Because I, I would not be shocked. Oh, if- they went back down into yes, lockdown, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, mm, okay, there you go. So, yeah, th- that's part of our big news here. Bollywood has gone back into lockdown. There's no filming happening as the entire country faces a serious COVID surge. People all around the world, you are opening up too quickly and too soon. I definitely include the United States in that. Watch what's happening in other countries. Try and learn from it. But New York theaters, they are planning to open up to 33% capacity, I believe, this week. And before we get to our big news that happened just as we finished our podcast last week, I was mocking some of the CEOs who in this troubled times with employees out of work, box office way down. These people are getting raises. Well, at least the IMAX CEO, Richard Gelfond, he got a modest pay drop. So there you go, from $7.1 million to $6.9 million. Tightening his belt, as they say. Essentially the same, but at least it wasn't an increase, so good for him. But what was the big news last week? Very upsetting to a lot of people in Los Angeles. Yes, so there is an operator here in Los Angeles, Pacific Theaters. They are owned by the Robertson Properties Group, which is owned in turn by Decorian. Decorian owns both Robertson Properties Group and Pacific Theaters. Pacific Theaters is also has a sister company named Arclight, the Arclight Cinema. Oh, they're so good. Yes, well, and the problem is uh, that Arclight, you probably know, owns the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. It's a, well, I guess you could call it, uh, well, it was in- like Man's, ha- Man's Chinese Theater. It's, it's yes. an iconic theater venue. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it was even in uh, the-, ho- the- and, your, and Arclight and Pacific Theaters are closing permanently. That's the headline. Yes, well, here's you, the you thing. You gave us our corporate history. They're closing permanently. Cinerama Dome is not going anywhere. But Arclight and Pacific Theaters apparently are closing permanently. This is not a bankrupt reorganization, is it? No, and that's what makes this uh, an interesting story. So uh, two weeks ago, uh, I was putting together the CJ Cinema Summit, and we we called Greg Lemley uh, of Lemley Theaters, the, the owner of Lemley Theaters, and uh, we Mike Majuri, actually, from Film Forum. So we had a New York and an LA oh. operator, but we also thought, well, Pacific Theaters. Let's let's call Pacific Theaters because they, you know, they're a big LA chain. Ring, ring, ring. Uh, ring, no, ring. I wish. I wish <laughs> it was more like the the extension you are trying to call is oh. not. And I was like, what? Like, I'm not trying to call an extension. And I started calling some of the people I know there. Pacific Theaters is notorious for not returning phone calls, for being very insular, for not really communicating to the outside world. So I thought, well, that's... <laughs> what are they, Xanadu? <laughs> no, they're just, you know, they don't... That's... They've been okay. very uh, insular. Very um, odd. All right. Family-run organization, Michael Foreman, uh, died in January of 2019. So the question was, is this the family getting out of the cinema business? Okay, Michael Foreman, the the patriarch, he died. Christopher Foreman was running it for years, but maybe this was just a good opportunity to get out. And given the fact that there was a pandemic, they couldn't get out of their leases. So maybe this was an opportunity. However, two of their biggest leases are with Rick Caruso or the Caruso company here in Los Angeles, the Americana at Brand in Glendale, California, and in, uh, I guess it would be Hollywood or West Hollywood, the Grove. These are two of the biggest movie theaters in the nation, highest grossing movie theaters in the nation. And, right. and they did not want to have to pay back rent 
And apparently, and I did a lot well, of dig, digging on this. They don't, but they're going out of business. It's not even, it's not about trying to escape debt. They are gone forever. Well, that's the question. There's, if they're gone forever, you do have to file chapter 11. You can't just like walk away and say, right? nope, I understand. That's right. That's legal. I understand. They got to do, they got to go through the motions. But are you saying they're not, that this is just a way to avoid paying I, debt? No, I think. trying to reorganize? I, no, I think that they are, they're gone. And they're why? Gone, right. Be- yeah, because they, they laid gone. everybody off. They basically fired everybody. Right. They're gone. So, they're, yeah. they're closing. There's no suspense here. They are gone forever. That does not mean the Cinerama Dome won't be saved. That's not going anywhere. No, but- here's the thing. Robertson Properties Group owns that property. So they are their own landlord there. They could actually yes. reopen. Right, right. Again, like I just said, Cinerama Dome isn't going anywhere. That will reopen under some new ownership somehow. But all these other places are shutting down. Somebody might snap them up as good locations and good businesses, as you believe. But these companies are genuinely out of business, right? Yes, that is that oh, is okay. The <laughs> okay, so thanks for the. Ten, I called them, and they're owned by this people. They're they're gone. They're gone, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, yeah. I, well, this I, is I, tragic, right? These are some of the top grossing theater spaces in the country. A beloved ArcLight, whose modus operandi was like luxurious treating of customers with very high prices, and everything they did has been sort of modeled by a lot of other people. So, their comfy seats and the food and the stuff and drinks. It's all been copied by everyone. So they didn't have that sort of exclusive aura about them anymore. They just had high prices. Yeah. Well, and they also, they were like the, the Cine East's, uh, Cine East's, uh movie theater. Cine you yeah. Cine East. You couldn't go and talk during the movie. There were no advertisements during a movie. Yeah. Well, you should never talk during the, a movie. There, right. they'd, they'd, they'd put you out. Uh, they'd introduce right. every movie, you know, it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. It was cool stuff. They had a great run, but they are gone. So that's just how many chains, how many locations are we talking about and how much of the. It was 300 well, screens. Know. I think it's 40 something locations. I, I, I can't imagine it's 40 something locations. It's, it was 300 screens. Uh, but here's the deal. You know, normally you, you could have one movie theater in a, a city like Los Angeles be available in a prime location. You could have mm-hmm. two, but to have at least five, at least five prime locations all shut down at the same time and be available on the market that's uh, it's never happened before so who's going to snap them up is it going to be a big big chain is it going to be netflix will they buy cinerama dome (laughs) no i don't think so no i mean i think i would not be shocked if decorian decides to reopen cinerama dome themselves under a different name just that one complex is it is it worth it as a business yeah yeah, I don't know. Probably I mean, it's not. A, right. It's a quite a big difference from 40 locations. P- part of the reason that they they uh, decided to close, from what I understand, is not only the the real estate of it all, but that Americana at Brand and The Grove allowed them to book films. It was the way they booked films that without those two theaters kind of driving the bookings, they mm-hmm. they would have trouble programming other venues that weren't as profitable. What's that? Well, why does that mean you would go out of business? They had those venues. You, ha- they had the Americana at Brand and and the Grove. They were gonna going to give those up. They were going to say, "Here's the keys, Mister Caruso. We're done." Well, they're, they're bankrupt. Them, they're bankrupt. They couldn't. They're not going. They're going to hold on to the other four locations. You mean, even though they're losing their main their main source of revenue? Yeah, they're going. They're losing the the big venues, and they're saying, "Well, it's not worth it financially to stay in business." Correct. We can't book that's, stuff that's, as easily. These right. are far less profitable locations. We're losing our prime revenue source. And they got so close to making it to the end of the pandemic. What went wrong? 
They just didn't get enough break on real estate, on rentals? Yes, correct. Uh, Well, everybody else somehow survived. It's a shame. They just don't have deep pockets, I guess. That's the sort of place you'd go see an award-winning film, isn't it? Oh, the number of, not only award-winning, but the number of premieres that were done at the Arclight. Right. And that brings us right into award season. Oh, I see what you're doing. Yes. We got a a bunch of one. We've said they're out of business. There's nothing else to say, is there? Yeah, no, no, I just didn't know where you all up. I didn't know where you were headed there. Now I know you're talking about the Annie's, the the Ace Eddie Awards, the Sound Editing Awards. You get an award and you get an award. By the way, do you think I have to tell people that that's an Oprah joke? See, do it three times and it'll be funny. Now, the (laughs) Annie Awards are the Animation Awards. Who were the big winners? Uh, Soul. So he won best feature and Wolf Walker's won best indie. I, okay. Uh, with, uh, I guess soul won like seven awards, didn't it? Yeah. So that, that makes him the front runner for sure. But you know, when they don't have an overall top prize, when they say best movie with a big budget and best movie with a small budget, that sort of doesn't let you know whether they preferred Wolf Walker's to soul. Soul did get more awards. So we'll take that as an indication that it is the front runner, but uh, Wolf Walker's is still in play there. Yeah, Sound and editing. I don't like it like they they break it down like best animated movie done with crayons, best animated movie done with watercolors, best animated movie done with a computer. I'm kidding, of course, but yeah. No, I mean, I like that. That's when you're into costumes, I can see why you break it down to best period, best contemporary, best sci-fi, fantasy, whatever. But you need an overall winner to show where you're laying your money down saying this is the movie we support. Best of show. In, best of in show. Sound- Exactly. In sound editing, we're not even covering them because all they did was break it down into all these confusing categories. There was no overall Greyhound, best sound, or Sound of Metal, best sound, because that's a good use of sound, or Lover's Rock. They didn't do it. So we're not going to talk about it. The Ace Editing Awards, they came close. They've got they've got a best drama and best comedy breakdown. And since nobody cares about comedy, that's probably pretty telling. Who was the big winner in drama at the Ace Editing Awards? The Trial of the Chicago 7. Boy, is that going to be the spoiler at one sag because Nomadland wasn't nominated? Uh, you know, yeah. you, can make an, you can make an argument for Mank, Minari, Nomadland, The Trial of the Chicago 7. These are all possibilities for Best Picture, serious possibilities. Well, I mean, I assume Nomadland will win at Best Picture and Best Director, but you never know. Uh, it'll be fun to see. It's a kind of a night with a lot of suspense. But it wasn't the only big winner at the Ace Editing Awards. Who won Best Animated and Best Doc? Well, Soul won for Best Animated. Can we just, like, skip that part of the Academy Awards? Can we just give them the Academy Awards? Okay, move no, on. No, I, I, I think Wolf Walkers is a. I think Wolf Walkers is in the mix. Okay. I don't think Soul is a, I've heard a lot of people say it felt too much like a retread of that last Pixar film about the little girl's emotions. Uh, uh, Inside Out. Thank you. Yes, that was a good movie. Uh, right. my, my octopus teacher won for best documentary and Palm Springs won for best comedy. Right, best comedy. Nobody cares about that. It's a good retread of Groundhog Day. It's clever. It's not great. It's not on my best of the year list, but it's good. My octopus teacher, definitely getting a lot of momentum. But boy, there are five really good docs or four or five really good docs in the mix at the Oscars. Collective is a great film that could win. Crip Camp is inspiring. My Octopus Teacher. Is Dick Johnson dead? Is that one of the Oscars? I know it's the the mole agent is in there as well. But yeah, yeah, I feel like my Octopus Teacher is getting a lot of momentum, but Collective has that, you know, know, shining justice. Yeah, and there are so many documentaries, okay, this year. So many that that there are four or five that are great in in that are nominated. There are four or five that are great that are not nominated. I saw two oh, documentaries. Yeah. I saw two documentaries over the, the last week. One mm-hmm. was uh told me that I was a horrible, horrible parent. 
Okay. It said that uh, it was called it, Chasing Childhood. And it was basically about how we've overscheduled, overcommitted, overprogrammed our kids to do everything at 9 a.m., 10 a.m. And you have I to agree. Yeah. Well, and they need time to play and be kids. I'm yeah, all for that. Yeah. And, and I know time to be a kid you, because your, your violin lesson is it is in five minutes. So get ready, get the rosin going. But the other documentary, Michael, you've probably heard of, which is mm-hmm. called Gunda. Mm, that sounds familiar. What is it? This is a black and white film made about a pig and her piglets. Oh, no, yes, yes. Oh, no that's dialogue. Really good. No dialogue. Well, well, it's not Babe. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, you know, a little spoiler alert here. You know, there. Why are you spoiling it? Oh, well, it's only that's in the first couple of minutes. Okay. That's not a spoiler then. All right. Uh, I will say this. A, a pig has uh, eight um, nipples, like eight, eight or nine nipples. And uh-huh. uh, sometimes a pig gives birth to more than eight or nine Piglets? And one of them loses out. <laughs> yep. And how they lose out? Oh my gosh. It was so upsetting to my kids. They were so upset with me. You for making- showed this movie to your kids without watching it first and knowing there'd be like dead pigs and maybe bacon at the end? <laughs> if this oh is a gosh. movie that makes you say, I'm never eating meat again? Uh, no, well, it doesn't, but yeah, you could see it's it, it just, there's a one-legged chicken, there's cows. And it's, it's not about animal cruelty. It's just about the lives of these animals and observing them, right? Correct. And it is a beautiful movie to look at. Absolutely yeah. stunning. Where is that? Where's that on? That is on, on at Limley Theaters. It's on, it, oh. I think, it, I think it was at five different lo- locations throughout the country. It was a really beautiful film. And Chasing Childhood, if you're a parent, I would suggest watching it just, uh, you know, not story wise, but f- as far as information and content goes, it is really depressing what we've done to our kids. Uh, yeah, no, I've always, my whole watching my nieces and nephews, I'm like, oh my God, like, when do they get to just like be bored and have to amuse themselves? But anyway, moving on, the cinematographers, the ASC awards were out. Mank won Best Picture. Hey, it's in black and white and it's about the movies. Don't count it out. And the Truffle Hunters won Best Doc. Uh, uh, you know, another great doc that's not in the Oscar mix. I think Time might be in the Oscar mix too, isn't it? I forget what yes, the five is. movies are. Time from Amazon, another interesting black and white documentary. And Crip Camp. Yeah, no, Crip Camp is in there. I mentioned that one. And then we had the Costume Awards. Promising Young Woman won Best Contemporary. Ma Rainey won Best Period. And Mulan went, won Best Sci-Fi Fantasy. Yes, great, wonderful. That wig and nurse's outfit in Promising Young Woman was awesome. Ma Rainey had costumes galore. Mulan had beautiful work. Which is the best one overall? Who is the best in show? You know what? I criticize everyone else. I've got the same problem at the IRA Awards. Yes, why don't you explain? Fourth- yeah, why don't you explain what the IRAs are? I know that longtime listeners will know what the IRA Awards are, but but why don't you kind of That's fill right. us in? Friends, friends in college in New York City in the seventies looked at the New York film critics and said, "Pah, we could do a better job than that." They went to a Chinese restaurant, spent four or five or six or eight hours arguing and kvetching. They did all sort of the major categories like you'd find at the Oscars, and they named their best film of the year of 1975. It was Barry Lyndon by Stanley Kubrick. Not a bad first choice. Uh, You know, that was cool. And they went on from there. They've been doing it every year ever since. This was the 46th annual IRA Awards. I joined in the 90s, so it's been quite a few years now that I've been there, like 30 years next year, I think. And, you know, they've got people who write best-selling books about film history, like Ed Sykoff, who wrote a, a biography of uh, 
of uh, of Billy Wilder, huge bestseller, big a lot of acclaim. They've had Oscar winners who've been at the IRAs. They've had film publicists who work for studios. We've had film critics, of course, and journalists, top editors at Premier Magazine and elsewhere. That's how I got into it. And just film buffs, people who want to see lots of movies. And so they're all like hardcore, arty, cinematic. You know, if it's a seven-hour Albanian documentary, they're there. You know, that's their kind of movie. So we're not arguing over Kong versus Godzilla. That's the type of stuff they have, but it keeps you watching movies. It's a lot of fun. And now this year, for the third time in history and the second time in three years, a woman has been honored with Best Director. Not Chloe Zhao, but Miranda July for her eccentric comedy, Kajillionaire, starring Deborah Winger and Richard Jenkins and Evan Rachel Wood. Did you see that movie? I have not, and I have wanted to uh, for a long time because I'm a you know I'm a big fan of Miranda July, and I missed it at Sundance. I missed it uh, at, at some of its other uh, festival stops, and uh, I've wanted to see it ever since. And you just reminded me, you know what? I really need to see that. It's by the way, if you want to support Alamo, you can by renting it on Alamo on Demand. There you go. It also won Best Picture. Best Picture is Kajillionaire, Best Director, Miranda July. Previous winners for Best Director, who were women, include Nadine Labaki for Capernaum two years ago and Nancy Savoka back in 93 for Household Saints, which did not win Best Picture. Uh, we also had the guy from this Polish film called Corpus Christi, terrific Polish film uh, about a young guy pretending to be a priest, Bartosz Bielenia. He won Best Actor. Great, great talent. He's made nine movies since this film came out. So he, clearly he's working hard. Best Actress was Kate Winslet for Ammonite and so on and so forth. Best Nonfiction Film was a tie. Dick Johnson is Dead and My Octopus Teacher, both well worth checking out. Um, you know, they're not all hardcore arty films. We have some really good genre picks that got a lot of attention. We got a link in our show notes. So you can check them all out. But if you like sci-fi, The Vast of Night on Amazon Prime, it's a 90-minute low-budget, very clever sci-fi film uh, at one best editing at the Iris for director Andrew Patterson. He wrote it, co-wrote it, directed it, edited it, and it's surrounded himself with really talented people. Very clever movie made on a dime. Uh, Relic, a horror flick, is a lot of fun. And The Kid Detective, starring Adam Brody from The O.C., another movie that made no waves commercially or critically. Nobody's paid attention to this film. It's great. It's a really good, clever film noir. You know, like kid detectives, like uh, Encyclopedia Brown? Yeah. Right? right. Imagine he grows up and he still wants to be a detective and no one thinks it's cute anymore. That's sort of the premise of the movie. But then it really becomes kind of dark. It's a genuine noir. And Adam Brody is great in it. I've liked him since the OC. It's a lot of fun. So check out our list if you like. A lot of good movies to watch. I love the fact that Michael O'Connor won for Best Costumes for Ammonite when uh, Kate Winslet and Shersha Ronan, they get totally filthy and muddy in that film, digging in the in the dirt for fossils. So I think it's kind of and I, that was one of the comments I made while watching it was like, man, they're they're they must have a good dry cleaner or something because <laughs> they're filthy. Well, she's digging in the dirt. She's an archaeologist in the 1800s, and that's her job. That's how she keeps makes her living. She and her mother are, and Gemma Jones are supporting each other. That's Kate Winslet. And as one I remember said, you know, they were clothes. They weren't costumes. You really felt like those were the clothes they wore, rather than some beautiful gown like you might have in Ma Rainey. Uh, not that I'm criticizing that film because I haven't seen it, but you know what I mean. You have a stately home and beautiful, gorgeous costumes uh, like for Downton Abbey as opposed to this. It really looked like clothes, lived in, real, believable. So that's why it was singled out. So, uh, you know, uh, good stuff to worth checking out. But we've got some 
Do we put it under not, it's not sexual misconduct. It so is social, no. it's social justice. You know what Hollywood has said, all right, apparently we're not allowed to have people who assault and mock and belittle or rape people anymore. Apparently that's a problem, but they're not quite sure how they feel about people who are just jerks. And you know what? If you allow people who are bosses who are really hateful, mean, um, vicious and cruel bosses, that leads to sexual misconduct and other problems. You know, you're not going to have a good work environment where people are protected and safe if you allow jerks to run free because they make you money. This yeah, is what we're I talking mean, about. Yeah, I think when you let jerks run free, they lay eggs every... Oh, wait, no, there is <laughs> chicken. Yeah, so, and it's jerk chicken that... Uh, yeah, never mind. Last week, we reported how the hot reporter did a big feature saying, hey, what about Scott Rudin? Everybody knows he's a, not like a jerk, like he's not nice, but he's a complete bastard. Like you don't want to be within 100 miles of him. Employees leave the industry forever because he's so abusive. One man killed himself 20, 10, or 15, 20 years later. His brother says in part, he blames Scott Rudin. He says, that's on you. Not You didn't pull the trigger, uh, but you know you, your abusive behavior drove him out of the industry. And Scott Rudin says, well, if they're tough, they can survive. It's like, you don't have to deal with abuse to work in the film industry. But big story happened. We thought, will anything happen? And then it was a bizarre, truly bizarre result. Well, because Karen the Associated Oli- Press came out and said, you know, this, this story in no, The Hollywood no, Reporter is published. And then nobody did anything. Nobody said no, a word. Right. Nobody, nobody spoke up. Uh, but apparently things were going on in the background. Meetings were being held, but we didn't know about that. The first thing we heard was the star of Moulin Rouge, Karen Olivo, and this is a smash hit show. It's her biggest role ever. She said, I'm quitting the show. I am not going to return to the show because of Broadway's complete silence over the behavior of producer Scott Rudin. Amazing, unbelievable, jaw-dropping, and yet a little puzzling because Scott Rudin is not a producer on Moulin Rouge. So it's like, what does, and that was just, I was like, what? Like, I, I kind of respect it, but that's weird. But more stuff happened, didn't they? What happened? Well, so I guess uh, you had uh, the music man is being produced now on broad Broadway or will be when it, when it returns by Scott Rudin and I have tickets. They have been rescheduled three times. I think it now is 2022, literally 2022 when my tickets are. Uh, It's the music old man. Yes. (laughs) By the time you actually see it. (laughs) And he's uh, the producer on it. One of the most touted and, and looked forward revivals of the year. It stars Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster starry cast. You, I mean, you know, huge. And so all of Broadway kind of turned to them and said, well, and they said, well, this is very concerning. And Sutton Foster said, well, if he's a part of it, I'm out. Well, well, now don't make it sound blithe. They were having private meetings and people were talking about what are we going to do about this? We've got a problem. And Hugh Jackman did not threaten to leave the show, but he's, and he's, he is all, all, you know, he's, he was the star of the show. Sutton Foster hadn't even signed on yet. He's the reason this show is being made. And he said, well, I'm concerned. (laughs) He didn't threaten to leave the show, but this is a problem. And then Sutton Foster waited and said, if Scott Rudin stays involved at his current level, I'm walking. I'm going to quit the show. And they met. And now Scott Rudin announced he is, quote unquote, stepping back from all of his Broadway productions and allowing other people to handle day to day business. He said, I've been a jerk for many years. Now, is this a hollow gesture? There's no word on the movies or future projects. He's not sort of losing out on the financial stake he has in these shows. Uh, is, is this? I mean, he's got To Kill a Mockingbird, West Side Story, and maybe the Lehman Trilogy 
on Broadway. That last one is a question mark because of the pandemic. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is probably dead, but that was another big show. He always has huge shows coming to Broadway. He's got TV properties. He's got movie properties. Is this just like him stepping back and saying, maybe in six months, nobody will notice I'm back at work? Yeah, I mean, he did, you know, we'll we'll see. I think uh, he's 62, right? Which is young, yeah. I like to think. For a producer, yeah. For a producer, yeah. Uh, and so w- we'll see. I mean, he, nothing has changed yet. Nothing he's just has said, changed. All right. I, I, I was standing here. Now I'll stand over here. Is this better? Am I okay? Can I keep taking all my money? <laughs> you know? So, but more has happened. Actors Equity spoke up and they are calling on Scott Rudin to release all of his employees and former employees from any non-disclosure agreements they have signed. So we, it's not done yet. So it's interesting. I didn't think anything would happen. I thought people were going to just be like, whatever. He didn't assault anybody, did he? <laughs> no, he, he physically assaulted people. That, that poor guy who says his brother, uh, committed suicide he says scott rudin kind of sort of kind of kind of threw him out of a car a moving car like he pushed the door open to get out of the car he was angry because his phone hadn't synced up this is according to the brother who posted a public video speaking directly to scott rudin saying to the you know the broadway i want you to know if you work with him you're working with a bully a racist a sexist a violent mean and hateful person who diminishes and and, and demeans the people around him i mean and I, i should say to listeners Michael is not uh, saying this uh, from his own. I mean, it may I'm sound. What the, I'm correct. repeating what the brother said about Scott Rudin. But yeah. we have known for decades he's a hateful, abusive boss. And that's like, oh, well, he makes yeah. me money. I, last week, I, 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 I told a story of why I didn't work for him when I had the opportunity because I knew this about him. I know people he screwed over professionally. So, you know. Uh, it doesn't mean I have an axe to grind for him because I don't really know that person well. But I know people he has screwed over professionally. Uh, not any reports of personal behavior, but it's a guy I never want to be within 100 miles of, just like Harvey Weinstein. I had no clue of what Harvey Weinstein was doing, that open secret. I had no idea, but I knew he was a bastard, and I don't want to be anywhere near him. I don't want to be in the same room with him. He's just an unpleasant person. But there is some good news. We do have some good social justice news at, at ABC. Uh, they will have the first black woman to head any network news division. It's CBS's Kimberly Godwin. She is moving over to ABC to take over their news division. That's great. We had the horrible news in Belarus of Fest director Tatsiana Hatsura Yavorska, who was imprisoned. Why and was she was imprisoned? In- what was the like? Was well, it like you're government, watching government. movies eh, into the into jail? It's a country where there's not basic freedoms, and there was an international outcry about it. She's a public figure and speaking out on social justice, I imagine, and the government threw her in jail, but the international outcry worked. And in Georgia, we have some news, whether it's good or bad, you can decide. The Will Smith movie pulled out and said, we're making a movie about enslavement. We don't feel good about being in Georgia. We're going to take a $15 million hit. Nobody has said that's wrong of you, but people in Georgia, like Stacey Abrams, saying, hey, a better thing to do is to come here, employ the people you want to support, and actively and publicly give a lot of money to the groups trying to keep Georgia blue. Fight. Do not walk away. We don't think this is the situation like apartheid South Africa where you should just cut us off completely. You know, it's good to show states will pay a price. Now, you can say, oh, this is better, but it's true. When sporting events pulled out of some states, they rescinded their anti-gay, anti-trans bathroom bills, so-called bathroom bills. So that sort of pressure can work. When you lose Major League Baseball, when you lose a big Will Smith movie, other states see that and say, hmm, maybe we shouldn't pass this law. But it can also mean 
you know, don't treat it as business as usual. If you're going to film Black Panther 2 here, you better make sure you do a lot to prove you're fighting to keep Georgia a fair state where everyone has the right to vote. Well, Netflix has been fighting. It's fighting all the time to get more subscribers. That's right. Thank you. Jeff Bezos in his goodbye letter from Active Day-to-Day Bossiness said, we have passed the 200 million subscriber mark worldwide. They now have 204 million subscribers. Wait, is that ne- Netflix or? Netflix. Netflix. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Has oh, no, nothing to do no, with Netflix. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Amazon Prime has 200 million subscribers, which is a titch under Netflix, which has 204 okay. million subscribers. I apologize for that. I'm drunk. It's the middle of the day. You know, I'm exhausted from the I rewards, all the champagne, all the caviar. So Amazon Prime now has 200 million subscribers. Not all of them necessarily listen to Amazon Music or watch Amazon Prime Video, but they do have access to it. Netflix, in comparison, has 204 million subscribers worldwide, and they're paying for it, and that's what they're paying for. So they, by God, are using the service or at least happy with it. How does that compare to the other folks who are in play? Well, Disney says, hey, Look in your rearview mirror. You, you see that little, <laughs> you see that that little like a silhouette behind you. Yeah, that's us. Okay, we're coming for you because we've got a hundred million subscribers and we've only been around for a year. How long have you been around? Yeah. Okay. So we're we're coming for you. Paramount Plus says me too, me too. What do they have? Uh, they only have sixteen million, and those are legacy from CBS All Access and, and Showtime over the top. So, and I, I'm joking. You know, they're so far behind that you know you can but barely they hear. Start, they just they, but just, they started. just started. Yeah. Meanwhile, HBO Max a year in uh, is at thirty six million. Yeah, I think that includes HBO and HBO. You know, I think it's a combo thing. Um, but uh, you know, I think that's a combo thing. But they're they're looking to grow too. And Netflix uh, is. You know, there was some silly survey which I normally don't pay attention to, but it said, hey. People think they have by far the best original programming. HBO Max is like, get me that new Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. And Netflix Netflix said they are ordering season two of Ginny and Georgia, that sort of Gilmore Girls-like drama. They claim, and normally I won't say point this out, but I'm going to do it just to criticize them. They said 52 million subscribers watched Ginny and Georgia in its first 28 days online. To which I say, what do you mean? Do you mean... 52 million households watched at least one minute of it or 30 seconds? Or do you mean 52 million households played the entire season from beginning to end? That would be meaningful to me. If they watched 70% of the episodes, that would be meaningful. Saying vaguely 52 million, and how could they know subscribers? Surely they mean households, right? They don't know how many, they could have more than 52 million because if you're in a household, there's probably often two people watching. So it may be more than 52 million. So they do not have good numbers and they're not going to provide them to us because they want to keep that info to themselves we have to turn to nielsen for good numbers except when those numbers aren't that good right and so i guess now you're going to tell us about some numbers that aren't good well the tv networks are pushing they say nielsen has missed a lot of people and a lot of eyeballs during this covid pandemic and nielsen is making finally a huge concerted effort to try and capture people watching stuff in public at bars and places, which will happen again in college dorms, and on their tablets and their phones and their laptops. They want to track all of it so they can get a better understanding of who's watching what. And the TV network said, hey, we want you to submit to an audit over your COVID-era audience measurements, to which Nielsen said, no, we're the auditing people. We're the ones who tell you who's watching what, so nobody needs to audit us. So they are at logjam. You know, they're having a logjam. They're having a fight over their numbers and whether they will agree to some outside measurement of their outside measurement of TV ratings. 
Oh, okay. but we do, you know, right. Was this confusing? No, no. Okay. I guess uh, maybe, we, we maybe a little. Okay, Nielsen measures TV audiences. No, I'm and the kidding. Network said, I'm You're kidding. missing a lot of people. We I'm want you kidding. to have an outside. Oh, okay. Well, we've got a link in our show notes to that story and our combined chart, courtesy of me, for the week of mid-March, March 15th to March 21st. That's the latest streaming numbers that we have. Grey's Anatomy is up on top. Criminal Minds is at second. And yesterday, the original movie that's on Netflix, that is in third place, just behind the top two. Not a lot of TV watching going on this week. The number one property, Grey's Anatomy, uh, they consumed 673 million minutes. We often see 1 billion minutes or 900 million minutes. So kind of a quiet week in the streaming world that only covers a few streaming services. But we've got the info. We've combined them into a big chart. And if you look at the chart, you'll see four of the top 10 overall are originals. And if you look at just series, both acquired and original, five of the top 10 in series are originals. Uh, when you look at just movies, six of the top 10 movies are originals. So they are pouring a lot of money into originals. And, you know, yes, Grey's Anatomy is on top. That's a massive, long-standing property. But those originals are bringing people in. And according to the survey, people like the originals they're watching. They are working. Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm tempted to say you get a movie, you get a movie, you get a, you know, but. Uh, that would be I, number three. That would be number three. If okay. you made a good joke, that would be a big deal. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, wait a second. For those of you just joining us, we have a segment called Big Deal or Big Whoop. And that must mean whenever Michael says big deal, I have to listen very carefully so that I know when, when it's time for that segment. Because big deal or big whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment. And we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. Watch out, Telemundo. Two major rivals are merging to create a Spanish-language media powerhouse. Televisa is a major player in Mexico. Univision is a contender in the United States. Together, they will become, and this is very, very creative, Televisa Univision. And the Univision CEO, Wade Davis, will sit astride this new blockbuster company ready to dominate the market for Spanish language programming worldwide. And I trust anyone, please. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a very big deal. I was trying to get uh, a comparison between them and the other Spanish language powerhouses, but, uh, you know, them versus Telemundo, but I couldn't get a good breakdown of that. If you do, we've given you our contact info. Reach out and tell us what are the sizes. Are they sort of equal or is this going to be really a David Goliath thing or, you know, what kind of impact this will have? They're going to be big players in the U.S. and uh, around the world. So, yeah, this is a, a big, big deal. The fallout is going to take months to figure out. Now, in the United Kingdom, Andrew Lloyd Webber's smash hit musical is reopening, and you might- That would be the Phantom of the Opera. I was going to say, all is, what was that, all is love or something like that? What was the- Love is all. Yeah, I know, music all. of the night. It, music of the night is the big hit, you know. Okay. Well, the West End mainstay has a refurbished palace to call home all the glamour and glitz you remember, but- about half the musicians. Yes, Aww. the orchestra is being downsized from a lavish 27 to some 14 musicians. Or as they say in on Broadway, you get 14 musicians? With, <laughs> with the other instruments blended via synths and the like, they're, they'll be using the orchestrations the touring production has employed for years. Big deal or big whoop? It's a big deal in a bad sense. What a shame, you know. One of the last big orchestras in the West End. It's great to have that huge 
player orchestra. You really feel it. It's emotional. It's real. And it costs a lot of money. And they said it was going to come back the same and bigger than better than ever. They refurbished the theater. Angeloid Weber's pouring, you know, tens of millions of pounds into other West End theaters to refurbish them to their glory. Such a shame that they couldn't justify keeping the full orchestra in the U.S. They have said, no, we are sticking with our full orchestra. We are not downsizing. When we come back, we guarantee it. But yes. that's what they said in London. Our but we'll full see what orchestra happens. of 10 people will be back, all 10 of them. Uh, we really do need, by the way, an in-house lawyer. Can we just talk about that for a second? Because everyone is suing everyone. And in this case, it's Disney and the writers behind the film Franchise Predator. Disney acquired the IP when it snapped up 20th Century Fox. Remember that? That happened like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, okay. It's been almost 35 years since the original film came out, and the writers who created it are using the laws that they say copyright reverts to them right about, wait for it, wait for it, now. Now, right now is when the, the copyright <laughs> reverts back to the, the brothers say they informed everyone involved they would be doing so back in 2016, and no one said anything. You know, no one said a peep. Not a peep. That is until the deadline approached, and then suddenly Disney was peeping a lot and suing them back. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? <laughs> well, you know, it's a big deal, but I'm kind of surprised we're not hearing stories like this every single day because all those movies from the 80s are coming up for play. So you'd think we'd be hearing about legal settlements, money being handed over, fights. You know, uh, uh, you know this should be going all the time. We've seen this in music. And now it's happening in movies and presumably TV property. It's a big area of contention. And we're talking about huge, valuable stuff from the mid-80s. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering why we don't hear more about it. Well, I'm sure you'll be hearing more about our next story. Because let oh, me tell yeah. you something. Release the lawsuits. I mean, release the Kraken. A monster of a battle is hitting the world of European football. In a blockbuster announcement, 12 of the biggest Soccer clubs in the world, really, are forming a new midweek Super League. Clubs like (laughs) Man United and Barcelona and AC Milan, and I think uh, Juventus is also uh, in that Uh, mix. 12 teams, yeah. Yeah, they will continue to compete in their national leagues. But midweek... Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Midweek, the best of the best will also play one another. So why is this happening? Is soccer poorly run by its officiating body? Are, are tournaments maybe too laborious and drawn out? Do these clubs have some beef with how things are done that can only be addressed by the radical step of breaking away? Not really so much. No, no. It's all about the money and the massive dollar figures being bandied about. Of course, all these clubs are already tangled up in a massive multi-billion dollar multi-year broadcasting rights deal covering TV, satellite, streaming, pay-per-view, and so on. So we can only assume everyone will sue everyone else until this all gets figured out. But is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, It's a very big deal. It's like in baseball, if the top six or eight teams, like the Yankees and the Red Sox in Chicago, just said, ah, screw the Major League Baseball. We're going to have our own games separately. Yeah, we'll maybe do some still, but we're going to do our own stuff as well and trying to sign up a whole bunch of new TV rights for it. They want more money. They feel like they're not getting enough money because they're the big players. And they're also signing these insane six, seven, eight, nine, ten figure contracts with players. They're paying so much money, they say their money they're spending is not keeping up with the money coming in. So they need more. This is about the big getting bigger, the big clubs throwing their weight around. I don't think it's about, you know, 
positioning themselves for a contract. No, no, this is serious. Uh, already all the big sports uh, soccer leagues are fighting back and saying you won't play for your national team. You won't be able to take part in World Cup. You won't be able to target in Champions League or Premier No. They are they're out for blood because this is at the heart of what they are. If the biggest teams can walk away and set up their own separate Super League, uh, you know, Germany's not in and France. The teams in Germany and France have not signed on. We're talking England, Spain, I should say the UK, Spain, and Italy, Italy yeah. are in play right now. Uh, this is ugly, ugly, ugly. And the blowback, it's been pretty universally condemned by everybody from sports commentators to uh, retired players to fans as just a travesty. Like, you just want more money. How about not spending so much? How about maybe not signing a $10 billion contract with a player? You know, how about some sense there rather than just blowing everything up and trying to start anew? So well, it's going to be ugly. It, it, maybe baseball's a bad example because they play 162 games a year. They'd have no time to play other games. But like football, it, right. it, it would almost be like as if the NFL said, uh, you know, teams in the NFL said, you know what, we'll still play Sunday, but we're also going to play on Wednesday now. Right. They play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. But it'd be like, if they said, well, we'll take Wednesdays for ourselves. Right. Yeah. And it would just be the biggest teams that were had the biggest, you know, contracts and thus, you know, the smaller teams like in baseball, like the Florida Marlins, screw you, you yeah. know, um, it's, it's ugly. It's messy. It's a big deal. We do have one breaking big deal, big whoop. Uh, in the world of my mom and her friends, this is exciting. Downton Abbey 2 has begun shooting. They are shooting. They are shooting the movie. It's going to happen. Dominic West is joining the cast. Other people are joining the cast. They say the entire original cast is back on board. They do not specify if that includes Maggie Smith. Well, not a word well, here's about the thing. whether Maggie Smith. They had that that setup for King, uh, you know, King Philip. Listen to me. She could she could be dead. Yes, of course. No, 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 no. I was going to say Prince Philip had the, the funeral. They were like, wait a second. We don't have to pay for a set. Quick, go, go stand over there. <laughs> oh. We're going <laughs> to right. shoot right. this right now. They're in production. They're shooting. And the movie will be released December 22nd of this year. So they're like, we've got it. They've got the script. We're ready to go. And now we've begun shooting very big news where I come from. Uh, you know, very exciting. In the world. My mom's even watching a rerun of Downton Abbey right now. Well, that sounds like it's somewhat like inside baseball. Inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, today we're joined by Pornsock Pitchett Schrote. He is a player in the world of comics, having been an editor on some of the top titles at DC's Vertigo. Then he moved out to LA to help launch DC's TV department and spearheading the creation of Arrowverse, making him the Eric Feige of DC, perhaps? I don't know. And with all that going on, Pornzak is coming directly from a TV writer's room to talk to us about the May launch of his new comic book series, The Good Asian. Pornzak, thank you so much for joining us. And here's my first question. How badly have I mispronounced your name? <laughs> you got, you, it was all right. It was Pichet Show. So you, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Oh, you got Pichet Show. So you, so you, you got, so you got close, like so the first close. half. The first half was there. Okay. <laughs> but thank you for having me on. I'm really psyched to, psyched to be on. Thank you. All right. That's very cool. And you're Thai American, right? Yes. Because yes, we're going to ask you to speak for all Asian people, of <laughs> right, every, even right. though Koreans are very different from Thai, very different from, you know, from Pacific Islanders and Chinese and, you know, 
There's a lot of Japanese. It's a lot yeah, of nuance, apparently. It's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of nuance. Yeah, it, <laughs> Who it, knew? it's an interesting thing. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because like I'm Thai American. I'm ethnically Chinese from my dad's side, but Thai Americans are a weird thing because there's like like in comics there are two other Thais besides me in comics. So it's like a You're very like, very small. Hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, have yeah lunch there's a together. list somewhere of all like the Thai writers in Hollywood, but and it's like four or five. Actually, it's longer now, but like professional credits is it, it gets very it gets very short. Yeah, the Latin community in, in every election, they're like, you know, yeah. Mexicans are very different from Cuban. We're like, yeah, you guess what? Swedish people are very different from Alabamians who are very different from, you know, British people who are very different from the French. You know, but, it's true of every ethnic group in the world. Everybody's there's a lot of complexity in the world. It's good to yeah. remember that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the things, and I think about it a lot when I'm writing The Good Asian, is that, because so much of The Good Asian is me trying to, wanting to write about Asian American themes and all that kind of stuff. But to your point, like, you know, Latinos come represent all these different countries and different cultures, and Asians, it's, it's similar. But for Asians, um, you know, we don't even, at, at least for Latinos, they all have the commonality of language. You know, for Asians, we don't even have that. And so a lot of, like, you know, me writing this book and trying to write from an Asian American perspective is asking my question, like, what does that even mean? Where it is so many very different types of types of groups, and again, like I'm Chinese, I'm ethnically Chinese, but I'm I probably identify more as a Thai American, and there's like three of us in my industry, so like you know. So there, you have a new comic launching. Uh, what's the date in May? It comes out. Uh, it comes out May fifth, Wednesday, May fifth is when it comes out, and people can go to their stores and and tell them to reserve a copy copy now. And that is from what what imprint? Oh, that is from Image. It's from Image Comics. Uh, they're the, the same guys. The, the best guys, if you're an artist, right? The best deals, yes. the best thing. They're artist-friendly company. You want to support Image Comics whenever you can. Yeah, it's the best. It's the best deal in town in, in terms of, in terms of comics. A lot of people are trying to be competitive, but for a, the longest time, Image and still does has a reputation of being the best deal in town. They give a, an enormous amount of freedom. And honestly, I don't think I could have done this book any anywhere anywhere else to with the degree of backing that I've had from Image. It's been no, amazing. Can- can anybody go to Image and say, well, since I would own the copyright anyway, here, I'm giving it to you and you can distribute it and, you know, almost like a, I don't know. Like it's not a self-publishing. Self- yeah, that's what I was going to say. Not- it's not a self, no, no, they're not self-publishing. They're, they're important people. Yeah, yeah, it's not self-publish. It's not self-publishing, but I think a lot of their uh, their ethos is a sort of like it's kind of the ethos of self-publishing. Like to to publish something on Image, like I have to know how to make a comic. I need to like be able to bring sort of the team together, and I give them a PDF file that can instantly be made sort of into a comic book. So it's so if you don't know that, it is a little bit hard. Like you can't just be a writer and be like Image. I have a story and they're not going to set you up with an artist and all these c- kind of things. Like, it's not a studio so it, per se. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a studio. So it's a little bit of the be- best of both worlds. One thing uh, I realized reading the good Asian though, is I don't know how to read comic books. Like I thought I knew <laughs> how to read comic books. I was like, wait, wait, do uh, okay. So that, that is said that, that bubble is said before this. And then that image goes before, wait, uh, let me go back. I was trying to figure out where you, you never 12. You never read a comic book? Well, no, I've, I have never been a big comic book reader, and I realized it's a problem with me, okay? It's not a problem with, with The Good Asian or any comic book. It's a problem with me not knowing how to do that properly. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. I Less so sort of now because I think, like, you know, with all of the, 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 the you know, multimedia, transmedia sort of stuff, but I definitely remember when I was sort of in college, there would be a lot of people that were just kind of like, I don't know, like, I don't know how to read these books. Like, I don't understand what the stylization means, you know, like there, I, 
you would hear stories about like, oh, you know, the, the, what is it? The, the, the cross hatching on an arm to give it definition is like, does that mean he has a tattoo? Like what is it? And so it has been kind of like an evolution of people like understanding how to read comics. It's one of the reasons why like, you know, Mouse, which was, you know, Art Spiegelman's book, which was one of the first big ones, like one of the reasons why he chose, you know, Art Spiegelman was a very experimental sort of comics, uh, creator but when he did mouse he specifically chose sort of like a very simple sort of format because he knew a lot of the readership didn't know how to read it um you know back in the day when marvel used to have like ultimate comics and they did ultimate x-men and ultimate spider-man they actually you know a lot of times they would do comics in tiers they would stack images on top of each other primarily because they, they thought it for someone new to comics it was the easiest way to read them it was just like oh you just start at the top and you go down but you know it's been less of a conversation, you know, with, with every sort of progressive generation, but I, but this, I'm definitely like the stuff you're talking about, I'm definitely not hearing for the first time. And in the sense of it's always been there since a legacy of comics of people like being like, Oh, I'm not as used to comics and I need to like teach myself how to read them. Yeah. Well, I, I very quickly it. realized it was me. <laughs> yeah. and, and I knew if I'm reading lone wolf and cub, I got to start at the back, you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Is, exactly. The mangas are very, you know, there's a gazillion mangas out there that lots of people have been familiar with for decades now. So that comic book, uh, uh, language is really, I think moved out into movies. You look at spider verse, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. terrific animated movie that really woke people up and said, there are different ways to create animated films. And you're yeah. also working in TV. You came straight from a writer's room. You're working yes. with DC. That's very cool. We don't know the show yet, but hopefully we'll find out soon when you can release that information. But that's got to be very exciting. You're juggling a lot of hats. But let's yeah. start with The Good Asian. This is a comic book set in San Francisco's Chinatown in 1936. It is a classic noir, really. And it stars uh, Edison Hark, who is a, you know, a tough, hard-boiled, conflicted hero. He's a Chinese-American from Hawaii, uh, which is the one place Asian-Americans became cops at the time. There were no cops for decades in the United States from 1936 on until the mid-50s who were actually Chinese-American, or perhaps even Asian-American, I should say. So people didn't have badges when you were Asian-American. Nobody expected you to have a badge. So this guy is extremely unusual, but to keep it in context, this is the era of where in pop culture you would see uh, Charlie Chan and people like that and Mr. Moto and people solving crime. So it's 1936, uh, and historically, an entire generation of Chinese Americans grew up with a ban on immigration specifically from China. It was the first country-specific ban that the United States had in their history, though it would broaden out to include other ethnic groups. And historically, the Supreme Court had ruled that a person of Asian descent could not testify against a white person in court. said, your testimony is no good. That was a ruling from the Supreme Court. So that's the world that these people are growing in. It's a, a real world. And you've got historical notes. You've got uh, a historian advising you to make sure you get things right. You've got cool explanations of some of the references you're making to. But let's be clear here. This is a fun noir with a tough, hard-boiled hero who has conf conflicted emotions about what he does. And it's got sex. It's got crime. It's got organized crime. It's got femme fatales. It's got mercy. It's got gates. It's got everything. So I've read the first three issues, and it's a lot of fun. And nobody should think they're going to be getting a history lesson here except obliquely. Yeah, well, yes. so it's all the stuff that you really want your kids to read about, you know, in a comic book. Well, it's a comic book like many that's for adults. Like I when you were reading Mouse. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is it's it's certainly a kid that even a teenager would not see anything that would shock or surprise right. them that they don't see a thousand times on TV. But yeah, no, it's a, it's absolutely a, a comic book for people. And like one great thing I love that you capture is like in the first big scene in 1936, we see our hero Edison Hark and he's in a, a housing 
a house where another detective is beating the crap out of this man trying to get information from him. They're trying to track down a maid who's disappeared. And the guy is interrogating him. I'm putting that in quotes. And it turns out the older man that he is interrogating or beating the crap out of is a drug addict and hiding his stash. And Edison figures that out. And he turns him in. He says, hey, you do know he's an addict and he's hiding his drugs in the vase over there or something like that. And the family's like, why did you do that? You're a traitor. He's like, well, I was keeping him from turning you people in and letting you get arrested because that's what he was about to do. Rather than lose his stash, he was going to get you put behind bars. And so our hero truly has all the complex, you know, conflicts of a person trying to be a cop, trying to do right by the people he's supposed to be protecting. And, and it ain't easy, that's for sure. Yes. By the way, that was fantastic. And I kind of wish that you could kind of introduce the, the comic in all these <laughs> interviews that I do, because that was an absolutely 100% fantastic job. But yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think part of the impetus for telling the story is to show a character that, you know, can be complex. And especially like, and that's where the title, The Good Asian kind of comes from, you know, Asians have sort of labored under this sort of model minority sort of sort of myth. And so, and, and even, you know, to have a book where a person of color can have flaws, you know, and, and a, a, the good Asian is a little bit of a play on that as well. A, all of that sort of stuff was to, you know, to show, uh, to, to show some uh, protagonists I'm not, I'm not used to seeing and, and really kind of dig in and, and have them be as multi-layered and multifaceted as, as sort of the great noir protagonists. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love noir is that, you know, they are such complex you know, dark, um, conflicted sort of characters. And it, it made it such a great, um, it made it such a great genre to play in. Yes. You know, it's a, it's, it's very cool. And of course you referenced somewhere else, Easy Rollins, which is a character created yes. by, uh, by Walter Mosley, one of the great characters in fiction, not detective fiction, but fiction yeah. overall, those series of uh, about 20 books, I think at this point cover Los Angeles from what year is it? The fifties uh, into the seventies. I think it's the fifties into the seventies, maybe yeah, the late forties. That sounds about right. That and sounds about right. It's like a chronicle. And, yeah. and as a, as a white person reading that book, it was one of the things that helped me understand the relationship between people of color and cops. It really did yeah. because he's always playing a dance with cops. He interacts with them all the time. He's just a guy. He's not an official, uh, even detective, much less. A, he's not a law enforcement person. And that dance you have to do it and how it changes over the years. Now, sometimes he's just in a bad mood and he snaps and that can really endanger his life. Yeah. I mean, that's really, those are great historical records of LA from the fifties to the seventies. And you're really kind of hoping to do that same thing from the thirties, perhaps on, or just explore that era very well. So that's, you've really got big ambitions. What's the run for your first season, if we can call it that, how many issues do you hope to do and what time span are you going to look at? Well, right now the the first book is about is about nine nine issues. We'll see if I ended up having to to, to extend it more. But right now it, it's nine issues, and then I am too superstitious to plan greater than to plan longer than that. So there are ideas for there are definite ideas for sequels if the book finds an audience. But I am such I don't don't know how other people do it, but I am such that like until those numbers come in, I'm just like, well, we're just going to do one right now. Definitely have ideas for more, and we'll sort of see what, if the numbers justify more or not. But to, to your point, Easy Rollins was definitely an inspiration. And, and the way, you know, those novels sort of chronicled, you know, a history of America, you know, uh, was something that is definitely an inspiration for the good Asian and would be an inspiration for the good Asian sort of going forward. But uh, for, for the first book, it just place, takes place in 1936. Now, I noticed in the, in the first book, in the first, I guess you would call it the first issue, issue yes, uh, there was 
something known as back matter, which not being in publishing, I, I said, well, there can not only don't I know how to read comic books, but now I've <laughs> got to go figure this uh, back matter. Get a dictionary, please. Uh, and I, so I, I had to go and figure out what that was. But then in the, in the second one, there was no, there wasn't anything there. Maybe I got an incomplete version or, or. Yeah. You know, so, so what, one of the things on the, on the PDFs, um, on the PDFs, we kind of sort of just kept, kept it to the story and then which which you receive but in the printed issue there will be sort of back matter so you know uh issue four an issue four issue two which i've just signed off on has like four extra pages and there'll be historical notes about sort of like the stuff what we see in issue one as well as stuff in the stuff in issue two i think i'm working on the the back matter for issue three right now and that's those are three pages and to sort of kind of expand all all that stuff but yeah but for the uh those take a little bit longer I haven't been a grad student in a very long time. And so like putting those things together, I'm just, it's always like, a, all right, today's my day to like remember what it's like to be a student and all that. And that's why it's great to have Grant Din, who's my historical consultant. And he kind of goes through everything, every part of the book that for me. But uh, but it's definitely like, you know, when I'm writing the story, like, okay, I know how to do this and it's fun. And it's like, all right, now it's time to write the back matter and I got to source my stuff and all that kind of stuff. And it, it gives me all these grad school flashbacks. So just to clarify for people, the back matter might include something like an expansion of what Angel Island is. That's the California equivalent to Ellis Island where immigrants came into America. And in your book, you have a flashback scene where a kid is at Angel Island being processed. And he's held in limbo until a wealthy man gets him out of there. So it's just fun you know it's like clicking on a wikipedia link to learn more about what you background in the story but to be clear the story is totally fun <laughs> yeah you yeah. know there's not this is not like you know now we shall learn about you know this is completely noir with rich people and poor people and struggling people and crime and sex you know yeah uh, but, you, you but keep going back to the sex there michael i don't well, know it's <laughs> exciting there's exciting sex well i'm just saying this is not a children's book this is a some people still wrongly think of comic books it's been uh, 25, 27 years since that big uh, atom bomb of 1986, 87, right. where you had Mouse and you had Watchmen and you had The Dark Knight Returns, which really revolutionized or at least brought to the attention of the rest of the world the great stuff being done in comic books. I've been a fan of graphic novels ever since then. I never read comic books as a kid like Sperling. I kind of was a kid who said, oh, you know, I'd rather buy a book. I'll, if I take a comic book, I will finish by the time I get to the car and I cannot draw. So I don't care about the drawings that much because I can't <laughs> do that. And that's not, you know, it's cool. I look at it, but I'm done and I'm get to the car and right. I'm done with Spider-Man. Now what? You know, I'd rather spend my money on a 300 page book and give me more value for my money. But that's not the story for a lot of friends of mine. What was your childhood growing up? Was it a comic books? Were you steeped in that world? Yeah, I was really steeped in that world. Uh, you know, what was funny is when I was uh, when I was in America, I was sort of always sort of into comics. And then uh, when I was 12, my family moved us to Thailand. And uh, and I did not know if I was going to come back to America at, the, at that point. And so in a weird way, comics and TV, they kind of became my sort of gateway to America. And in a weird way, I, you know, as I look back as an adult now, I think there was a part of me that was that felt like, oh, if I could figure out how comics and TV worked, I might be able to figure out like the American I would have been if I never left, you know, did you, you know, speak if I never Thai? left the country. Badly. Very, very badly. I mean, I knew a little bit. I mean, it was actually so bad that my first year in Thailand, even though I could understand and speak it, I didn't say a word because I wanted to make sure I got the accent right because I was so self-conscious about it. So like I, you know, I could, but like not well. And, and, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why, like for me, comics and television were the, the cheapest things I could sort of consume that were kind of my lifeline to sort of what American, you know, American life was like and what my life would have been if I 
never left at, you know, at, at the age of 12. So you weren't getting it from uh, the king, the king and I, that wasn't where you got your no, information no, no, from. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> right. What's, what's, so, what, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh no. What's funny about it, Thailand at the time was it, it was so hard to sort of find that kind of media. So like when I moved to Thailand, it was still during like the piracy phase of Thailand. And so as a result, like you got one new movie a month and on television before you, I got cable, when I didn't get cable till years later, there was one movie in English and it was almost like a drive-in where you had to tune in your stereo to get the English like soundtrack of that movie that was dubbed in Thai. So it was like, I just grabbed anything I could. And so that's why like, so many of my references are just like random, like, oh yeah, I, I love Navy SEALs and I love mannequins. <laughs> like, you know, it's all like this hodgepodge of like whatever we could get. Like, you know, I saw the tank three times, you know, like all those kind of weird hodgepodges of stuff. Cause I didn't have a choice of, of the media, uh, of the stories I could get. Now, did you know the, the comic industry when you were growing up? I mean, when did you say, you know what, I'm going into comics. I, you know, it's funny as I, I don't think I ever sort of said that. Uh, if anything, for the longest time, comics was this thing was, you know, I started off as a short story writer. I wanted to get into film. And for a, the, a long time, comics was the one thing I did for fun. And, and I was just like, you know what? I don't want to get into comics because it's the only thing, you know, it's the only thing I have to amuse myself. The thing that did happen when I was a kid, though, was that because there's only, you know, so many times you can reread the same comic over and over again, I ended up remembering the people who made the comics just as much as sort of the stories. And so, so it was, it, I did get a sense of like, oh, people made these, but I never really considered myself to be one of those people. And what happened was I was, um, you know, I graduated college. I was doing that thing where you're, you know, I was working in film, but like as a script su- supervisor and working odd jobs. And I kind of told myself like, you know what? I think I want to like not get a full-time job and just do that freelancer thing of living to be as a freelancer to see if I can make it. And Who around- needs health insurance? Exactly, exactly. And then, um, and then around that time, a friend of mine uh, said, hey, I heard the editor-in-chief of Vertigo is looking for assistant. And I have no idea what those words mean, but I feel like you would. And I feel like that's something that you'd like. And I was a huge fan of Vertigo being a big fan of comics. So I took that job interview just so I could meet Karen Berger, who's the editor in chief <laughs> of it. And it, I literally had no higher like ambitions than that. I just wanted to meet her um, because I'd seen her name on so many of the books that I love. And that first interview led to an editing test, was led to a second interview. And by the time they offered me the job, I was still like, I don't know, like comics is that thing I did for fun. Like I- I'm on this film track. I don't know if I want to sort of, you know, get into comics in that way, even though I love comics. And I eventually rationalized it as like, you know, working in film, you'll work, I'll work these six months temp jobs to like make ends meet. So I'm like, eh, worst case scenario, it's like a one year temp job. and But right. I'll get a chance to like work with all these like, comics people that like I've always admired and have always inspired me. And it ended up being this, you know, a, a very wonderful digression where, you know, I, I spent seven years as an editor in Vertigo. And then after that, you know, Jeff Johns kind of like recruited me to be part of his think tank to turn DC comics into other media. And so that led me to the, the TV side of DC. So, you know, my DC like time period lasted about 12 years. But the irony is, it's like every year, if you had asked me, I was like, yeah, I think this is it. I think this is my last year. You know, I think I've done what I want to do. And then, but it, it, I love the community so much. It was so creatively satisfying. There is a world where, you know, if I stayed in New York as a comic book editor, I might never have transitioned to writing just because I found editing so uh, creatively satisfying. And it was only when I started to become a television exec where I started moving a little bit farther away from the creative process, or at least the boots on the ground creative process, that I realized, like, I miss writing and I want to kind of get back to writing. 
Was there any, uh, any, were they totally open to you also doing your comic book? You're like, I've got a full-time job here on these shows and writing and my, my TV exec world, but I need to do this. What was it that you felt you could have total control over a project and do exactly what you want? Or was it the story that just said, I have to do this story? Or was it like, I need to own some IP, baby. I want some <laughs> of my own IP. I mean, for me, it was, you know, I, I, before I could sort of write on my own, I needed to sort of quit that job, that executive job from DC entirely and just be sort of become a, fr a freelance, freelance writer. And then so, so from there, you know, it's been an interesting process balancing sort of two careers. And like, I, it wasn't necessarily what I've learned about these writing freelance careers is like, you know, you make do with what you have. And so rarely do you choose your career as much as it sort of chooses you. And so, you know, I think at first I just, I had thoughts of like, I wanted to write comics. I wanted to write TV. I would try to do both. And they both kind of caught fire at the exact same time. And then I found I didn't want to lose momentum in either. And ever since I've been playing this game of like, all right, well, how do I keep myself on the stands? And how, am I, how do I do the books I want to do and do the shows? And the good news is, is the way television has uh, evolved with these short run shows and short order shows, it became, at least in theory, this idea is like, I think I could do television for six months and then come back and write my comics and then go back. And and the, the truth of the matter, which I would come to find out is as a TV writer, whenever you're not looking for a job, you're whenever you're not working on a show, you're almost looking for your next job. And so it hasn't been as like straightforward as I would like, which is why there's been like, you know, three years since my, since my last book. But the goal has always been like, you know, it would be great to find a show where I can just work six months, do comics for six months and then sort of bounce back. And it, the world hasn't exactly accommodated that yet. And so I'm still trying to, 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 to balance the two. Well, what do you mean? It's given everybody 12 months off just, just Although like TV writers are, still those are the only people working yeah, yeah those are the only people work it's actually kind of funny because um and it really shows like the the difference in sort of personalities of like when you know the lockdown and the pandemic sort of happened uh all of television and film that I know of, I don't know how, how you guys have seen it from your end, but everyone I know, they're just kind of like, we got to keep going. Cause like when this starts up again, like we don't want to get part of the rush. Whereas in all of, and, but meanwhile, like production was such a hassle to like, you know, figure out how to get production going again. Meanwhile, comics had the easiest sort of production path and everyone in comics was like, this is the end of the industry. Like, you know, this was going to sort of stop. So it was fascinating to sit and straddle both worlds and be kind of like, oh, these are the places that have the resources to do it. And they're terrified they're going to be extinct. These are places who have no resources to do it, but they're the places that are just going to forge ahead. So it, it was kind of fascinating to watch in that. In that are you worried about the idea that like uh, comic book stores, I mean, they're, they survive everything. Of course, they've always been on the edge of failure. They've always been nearly bankrupt. They always survive, but it's scary seeing uh, the major DC and Marvel move away from diamond. It is. It's scary to see, you know, that's just has to lean more towards traditional bookstores rather than the comic book stores. It's definitely worrying. And I, and I, I'd be lying if I said like, you know, especially when DC sort of pulled out of diamond, like, you know, I had to sort of rethink sort of, you know, how I went about my sort of comic business in terms of like, you know, do I need to branch out and talk and work with other publishers and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Those for the first time, those were like conversations, active conversations I was having in my head at the, at the very least. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's weird and it's a tough time. The only thing I can say is that, and it's kind of magical. Like, you know, if you looked at March 2020, everyone thought comics would be gone in six months because of all this. And if anything, it's a year later, and this has not been across the board, but the comic industry is actually doing better than it than it was sort of a year ago. You know, a 
collected there's been a huge collectability market that has risen up in this sort of past year the 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 companies have sort of really leaned into that and and listen there's talk about are they leaning into it too much are we going back into the ways of the 90s where it's all about speculation and less about sort of product and so you know that's a conversation that still needs to be had but i think it is scary times with marvel and dc sort of pulling away but at the same time like you know I can't imagine it would have seemed scarier than it did a year ago. And to see how comics, you know, kind of rally through that in these kind of inspiring ways uh, makes, you know, gives me faith that, that, that it, it's hopefully not as bad as we, we fear it's going to be. Now, we should point out that what, what we're referring to by collectability and Diamond, Diamond is a comic book distributor. And they, and they are, are practically a monopoly. They, yeah, they have been yes. a monopoly for decades. Yeah. So, so they do the physical logistics. And with Marvel and DC pulling out, well, who else is left, you know, to actually give Diamond comic books, keep them in business so that, that they can, uh, you know, distribute comic books. And as far as collectability goes, I remember in the 90s when literally every other comic book was a number one. Everything yeah. was number one. It's a number one <laughs> because, you know, Superman number one sold for how much? Yeah, well, then we have, you know, X-Men number one, but this is now X-Men plus number one. You know, it's just like the next next month would be another number one. Uh, are there any thoughts to uh, having somebody, well, now that with these non-fungible tokens, these NFTs, are you like, okay, here's my, you know, here's my my PDF. It's the only PDF. You're going to be the the owner of the the first comic book. Not only is it issue number one, it is the PDF number one. You'll get but, it. Blockchain me. Right. Well, so ah. people are people are selling the rights to digital artwork and digital content, sort of saying, "Hey, you sort of have the official uh, link and rights to this piece of work, whatever it may be." It's called a non fungible token. And now, a lot of comic book artists, in particular, were getting by and surviving because they would do their work. They don't get paid well. They're always sort of freelance, and they're churning out material for all these publishers, large and small. And every once in a while, they would be able to sell a piece of their original artwork two people online. They'd eBay it and they'd make some money. And that was how they were sort of keeping paying the bills. They weren't getting rich doing it. Now they've said, oh my God, I can sell an NFT. And so now some of them have been doing that and it's been catching fire and they've been making good money. And DC stepped up and said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. There might be money in this. So nobody gets to sell an NFT involving any of our characters like Wonder Woman or Batman or anybody like that. And so we figure all this out and see where all the money is. So hold on on that. So now the Good Asian, you're doing the words on Good Asian, I assume. Yes. And you have artists. Tell us about the great artists doing it. And did they create it all digitally or did they consciously say, oh, I need to do the cover physically because I got to have something to put on my wall or to sell or to just keep because I want a physical reminder what I did here. It's fascinating. So the main team is uh, Alexander Tefenki, who Tefenki, and uh, who is an artist who lives in France right now, and his stuff is absolutely amazing. And he works completely digitally. Um, Lee Lowridge does colors. Jeff Powell does letters and design, and they sort of all work digitally. I have a series of you know cover artists and variant cover artists, and they work. You know, we're in this odd time right now where. I actually don't know if there are originals of some of the pieces that they've done or, you know, or so many pieces, especially for covers, they'll composite it digitally. So like it might, like I own a cover to uh, a book I edited called The Unwritten and Yuko Shimizu, who's a wonderful artist, uh, gave me the cover 
that covers six separate pieces that sort of like that you overlay together. So like even putting it on my wall, it takes up an entire wall because I need space for like all the different sort of pieces of that cover. But we're in this interesting time right now where it's hard to like, I don't actually know what's digital and, and, and what's physical. And it's, it's always this weird conversation when people ask like, you know, is it does a black and white version exist? And I'll be like, I don't even know if a black and white version exists. For all I know, they went straight <laughs> to colors. So out of curiosity, as somebody who uh, loves typefaces and fonts, uh, what does, because there are different, you kind of alluded to it, there are different crafts. There's the yes. writing of the comic book, there's the drawing of the comic book, there's the coloring of the comic book, and then the inker, the letterer. Yeah, there's a letterer. So if I was a letterer, let's say I wanted to change careers and go from a, a poorly paid podcaster, and by poorly <laughs> I mean not paid at all, uh, to to become a, a, uh, a letterer, that's probably not the correct no, no that, is, that is that's correct the, uh, so uh, w- what what would i be looking at as far as how much would i be paid to do a comic book maybe not not the good agent but like a regular comic book what would it or or is it like well you'd need to do four of them per day and you'd have to uh you know you, you'd still be living in a hut uh down by the freeway <laughs> there's a lot of so so the thing about comics is well i guess the comics are are, are like the rest of the world where one of the things i found is i the, the they've really taken away sort of the middle class. And so there are like really high rates and really low rates. So, you know, but there, I, I've seen rates as low as like $10 a page. I've seen rates as low as they don't pay by page. They pay by project to kind of squeak a little bit more out of you. It's one of the things that, you know, coming from an old editorial background, I work really hard to sort of, you know, to, to kind of, to, to kind of pay sort of, I can't afford like a Marvel DC rate, but I try to give people sort of like the a middle rate at the very least. Cause there are publishers who, you know, another very common thing you'll see is a, a publisher will spend a ton on a hot, sexy writer or a hot, sexy artist, and then they'll pay a cheap amount for the colors or the letters. And, and, and you kind of, and you can kind of see that. You know? Well, so so if ten dollars is the is the bare bones, like what is the the big? You like I'm an Oscar winning letterer, and uh, you know I have I have my twenty dollars. Yeah, yeah. Talk I, to my agent. I know at the time, and again, this was ten years ago, and so actually no, ten years ago, and and since then, a lot of that middle class has sort of fallen away. But I knew at the time, like the top rate for the guy who's won all the awards was like fifty dollars a page, but. But even then, like when I say ten dollars is the minimum, like I guarantee you, there's a lot of letters making much less than that right right now. Like it's just, you know, it, it, I think it's it's a little, you know, comics are share a little bit of overlap with indie film in that way, where there are some projects that get by on passion, and they some places just you know exploit that. Well, now you know it's a it's a comic book, and it's meant to be read as a comic book, yes. and it's enjoyed. But of course. Uh, because you're in TV and film, you can't help thinking of other iterations of this. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're thinking film or, or Netflix series or HBO Max or what, but what are you going to do when the studio says, oh, we like this project, they want an option. They're like, we think we see Henry Golding in the lead. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's Malaysian? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, this is not, but, but he is very good looking. Maybe we'll accept. It's not easy, is it? Representation of Asians in the media. It's it's really tough. I mean, and, and you bring up a good point with someone like Henry Golding or or Andrew Koji and all that. Like so many of the Asian leading men that we're used to seeing are half Asian. You know, they're, they're, they're half uh, white. So there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's called so, prejudice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like even, you know, that's a, that's a thought that I definitely think of where it's kind of like, 
okay. You know, it, it's funny when we talk about sort of, you know, you know, putting the camera sort of on an Asian perspective, there's actually a lot of stuff that we take for granted that, um, that to, to seeing that, that you suddenly have to re-examine. Like, Asians look much younger than white people. So, you know, a Asian in their late 20s might look like what you think someone in their early 20s might look like. And so like, that like becomes I'm, a like question. I, I'm 17, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like all those kind of questions. And I do think about a lot of like, as you're doing these trans translations, like, you know, to, to what degree do you, do you sort of hold that fidelity? And I'm not in a, in the place to have to make those decisions yet, but they are sort of active things that I sort of think about. Like it, I actually am very curious at some point. It was just like, wow, are you going to have to cast like a third, a 40 year old or 30 year old Asian person? Because that's what America thinks like a 20 year old Asian person looks like, you know, like all those, all those kind of questions that we actually haven't been sort of, you know, been allowed to sort of or not had the opportunity to sort of ask these questions. Which, which well, when, I, when I looked at the cover for the first issue, I felt like you leaned into saying, here is our detective. Here is our hero. We want to make sure he looks Asian. Like yes. we're not, we're, we want to make sure this is a Chinese American. This is not a guy that could sort of blend in. Oh, isn't he? Like, yeah. no, no, no. Like, Foreign, and I mean yeah. that in the sense that we don't want you to look at this guy. Oh, he just looks like Andy Hardy. No, no, no. Yeah. This is this, so. I thought that was a conscious choice. And you, when you get into the issue and the look of the character, that is not it's slightly stylized. I think on that cover, just to make clear where we're yeah. beginning from. That's yes. an interesting choice. Absolutely. So you've got you got a lot of stuff to deal with. There's there are obviously you talk about uh, Charlie Chan and and other detectives that that were sort of very popular in that era. Charlie Chan, Mr. Moto, Wong, uh, and how those characters can go from being people that make you so proud to people that then they become embarrassments. And then you can, no, actually we're proud again. Or maybe we can see the really positive parts of them. Cause you, you had Charlie Chan. He was always the smartest person in the room. Yeah. This is my white perspective. He was the smartest person in the room. Uh, he always kept his dignity. Uh, he, he spoke in Chinese fortune cookies. You wish there'd been a scene without white people where he made fun of that, but he never right. did. But his son was his number one son was a total all American kid who was into sports and things and girls and soda pop and move. You know, he was just a kid. Like, and you can see that generational, the first generation comes, they don't speak English fluently. The second generation speaks both languages and the third generation speaks only English. And you had to feel like if you were uh, Asian American watching those movies at the time, you probably felt this is cool. We're seeing a positive portrayal and the son is all American in every sense of the word. And then 10 years, 25th, 40 years later, you find out, no, no, you should be embarrassed of Charlie Chan. It's humiliating. Plus, he's played by a Swedish actor. And then you find out you should be maybe interested again. How does that deal with you? You've grown up with this. You've had this whole history embedded and you've seen it all as a kid. You've seen Kung Fu in the 1970s. And then you see a reboot of Kung Fu coming out today set in Chinatown in San Francisco, right, where you set your book. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny. I... You know, you try, I tried to do sort of that like sliding doors kind of math where you follow like, what would have the reception of Charlie Chen been if he hadn't been played by a Swedish person for, you know, for so, for so long, if it wasn't someone sort of play, playing yellow face. And it's hard to, you know, to, 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 to do that sort of math, because I think there were sort of a lot of, and certainly the creation of Charlie Chan was to offset the creation of Fu Manchu and sort, and very much was to provide a, a good Asian sort of, you know, uh, a character and protagonist there. But, you know, it, it's, it's been a tricky thing of, 
you know, on the one hand, it's just like, if you can look past the yellow face, was it a bad thing? But then you're like, but I have to look past the yellow face. So like, how, where do I, you know, where do I sort of sit, sit there? And yet white people didn't know it was yellow face. Yeah. They weren't saying, oh, I'm enjoying this because I know it's a white guy. Or right. as far as they would consider him, uh, they yeah. were saying, oh, I'm watching. They think they're watching a Chinese. They've no Hawaiian or whatever Charlie's ethnicity was. I forget. But he was Hawaiian. So yes. they're thinking that's what I'm watching. They have no idea they're not watching, uh, you know. Yes. Al- although, you know, the first few uh, Charlie Chan movies, they tried with an Asian actor, I think with a Chinese oh, right. actor. They didn't, and, yeah, they, they didn't, and they didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. So then that's when they went over to the, the, the Swedes. Um, so like, it, it's a fast, like, and you know, and I think that's, and listen, I think about it a lot when you're sort of creating stuff, how like the progressive stuff today is kind of the stuff you look at in the future, be like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, you know, I just woke up this morning and like, saw the Chang-Chi trailer and, or, and, you know, Asima Lu was sort of talking and, and, and Daniel Christen were talking about how like those comics were great as a source material, the fact that this character existed, but there's a lot of stereotypical sort of stuff in that comics that they tried to sort of steer away from. And it's always sort of fascinating when you take that stuff and reexamine it. And I, uh, Lord knows I think about it a lot about how like, oh yeah, the progressive stuff today might seem like very racist or very, you know, xenophobic in t- tomorrow. Did you watch the trailer for Disney's uh, new, uh, uh, the first uh, superhero movie with an Asian superstar, uh, Asian uh, leading character? It's called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Did you brace yourself when you watch the trailer? Do you just watch it hoping you won't be embarrassed? Or are you like excited and thinking this is going to be cool and I know it's going to be all right? You know, it, it, it's all of the above, I think, is, on, is probably the most honest answer. Like, there's stuff there that I love, and there's stuff there that I sort of get excited by. But at the same time, like, you know, one of the reasons why I made Good Asian the way I did was it was a way to, you know, to tick off a lot of the boxes of the things that I want to see. And so, like, I think it's so, like, I think Shang-Chi is so cool. But at the same time, like, I also want to sort of see... Asian protagonists that don't involve martial arts, that don't involve exotic you know, mysticism or, or you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. So it, it, I, there's a whole, you know, there's, there's, there's a sort of a lot, uh, you know, that, that kind of goes into sort of watching it. There's stuff I love and there's stuff that I'm just like, Oh, I really hope they pull that off. And, you know, and we'll <laughs> sort of, it will, and we'll, you know, you kind of roll how it goes, but I just think it's awesome that I, I, I'm very much looking forward to watch Simulu become a star. He seems so charismatic and that'll sort of be fun. That'll be fun to watch and, and, and see what he's like, you know. But do I refer to him as Liu Simu or do I refer to him as Siu, Simu Liu? I'm not sure I, what's the most. I uh, always get that confused. I, I always get that confused. Well, you know, that's, I mean, in, in Asia, he would refer to himself as Liu Simu. I'm just so, not yes. sure what is, what would be most polite to him. He's certainly being branded as, you know, it's Jackie Chan. It's not Chan Jackie. They right, right, made yeah. a, he made a, and I don't know what Jackie prefers. So yeah, it's hard go, to know sometimes. I, I just say, sir, how are you? Thank yeah. you very much. Well, you know, it's it's been great to have you on the show. We're excited. We've seen the first three issues. We like them a lot. We can't wait to see the other six or seven. You never know. There might be another one in there. It could could happen. Uh, But, you know, keep us abreast of all your work. And when you got your TV project going, let us know. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Where can people go to get more information about The Good Asian uh, uh, or uh, your work in general? Uh, you can follow me on real underscore porn sack on Twitter or real underscore PSAC on Instagram, the good Asian. Uh, if you want to find out more about that, you can just go to my publisher image comics website and sort of look it up there. And, and it's at the top of there. the page. It's uh, there you go. It's at the top of the page. And then, and yeah, and those would probably be the best places to, to look.
And so uh, I, you, you now have at least one new follower. Uh, that would be uh, me, by the way. Uh, and yeah, so it's real, R-E-A-L underscore P-O-R-N-S-A-K. Yes. And if you want to order The Good Asian, on the Twitter page there, there is a diamond code, which I'm sure is important for some reason. I do not know what that really means, much like I don't know how to read comic books. I have no idea what that means. I would just all go to the you comic need book to know, store like, All you need to know is that if you're interested... Contact your local comic book store. You can find your local comic book store. There's a website called comicstorelocator.com, which will tell you where the nearest comic store to you is. Contact them. Say you want a copy. Say you'd like a copy to be reserved, and they will reserve. All that other numbers and stuff, that's all for retailers. You don't need to know any of that. Just call your local comic book store and say, I want one, and they will put it aside for you. And you buy two copies and put one in a sleeve, <laughs> and you never touch it because yeah. it's going to be worth Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then, uh, but if 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 they want, they could also uh, Comixology is also, I, I guess, one way. But my question is, is it like Spotify, where like if they read it on, on Comixology, congratulations, you just earned two and a half cents. Yeah, my my royalties on Comixology is definitely different than sort of my print uh, royalties. I'll be honest, I I've never actually done sort of the breakdown on sort of how much different it is because they kind of give it to you all in sort of in one bulk. Some a sale is a sale as far as I'm concerned. So like if you wherever you get it, you get it, and I am more, I am more than happy with that. Well, it's been great speaking with you. I mean, I I have so many questions about comic books that I could just talk to you all day because you know, I, but I, I don't necessarily know whether, for instance, our listeners care about like, well, what's a good run on comic books? Is fifty thousand good? Is two thousand? I have no idea about that kind of stuff. Oh God! I mean, the, the funny thing about that is things how things have changed, like. Back in the 90s, you know, you used to have million copy runs. And now what? if you get over 100,000 copies, it's like a blockbuster. You know, yeah, it's a blockbuster. I mean, back in the, in the 40s and the 50s, like comics used to sell in the millions routinely, you oh, know. Yeah. Uh, but in the 90s, like, you know, Jim Lee's X-Men, they made headlines because it was a million copy is a million copy run. But now, yeah, like it, now you're part of a special club if you sell over 100,000 copies. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, record sales. Remember yeah. when, like, Michael Jackson sold 20 million copies, and now they're like, Taylor Swift sold 20,000 copies. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I think part of, you know, what we're seeing, like, the, the, the evolution right now for comics sort of seemed to be, listen, in trades, digital, what have you, get it where you can get it. And they're trying, much like vinyl, trying to make more about the fetish, fetishization of sort of the physical object of sort of the single comic, which listen, if that's the, I do that already. So like, if that's the way the industry wants to go, I, I'm not going to stop it. Well, certainly thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, we will place links to all of your work in our show notes. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, that was great of Pornsack to stop by. It was fascinating. He's a lot of cool stuff. And he's got projects in TV that we even couldn't talk about because they're not open and official yet. So he's right from the TV writer's room. Yeah, I was going to try and prod and go, well, it was great, especially since you took time off uh, from working on a Batman, uh, uh, Ant-Man. <laughs> on, like, you just see like which one he kind of went, oh, I can't talk about that. Uh, but Ant-Man yeah, is Marvel. Ant-Man is Marvel. I know, I know. Yeah, but yeah. but well, again, a- not a comic guy. So for me, Ant-Man is just a guy that's like, you know, the size of a t- small, tiny dot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, but one big talent is actor Helen McCrory, who died at the age of 52 from cancer. It's time for obituary section. She's the only one we're mentioning 
auditioning this week, an acclaimed actor, and she died, you know, unexpectedly, at least to the rest of the world. They really kept it quiet. Just six weeks ago, she was on TV promoting some charitable work, and the presenter on Good Morning Britain asked her why her voice was so croaky. And she said, well, I've got children and no makeup artist and no hairdresser. So very British, very stiff upper lip. If you know her, it's probably from her uh, autocratic Aunt Polly in the TV series Peaky Blinders. So she was basically keeping an unruly gang of mobsters under her thumb, a terrific role. And now it's going to be sadly a career capper. But she's also, you can see her in Harry Potter, James Bond, His Dark Materials, and a long list of notable stage credits in the UK and US. I've seen her on stage. She's a great actress. She's the wife of actor Damien Lewis, who had some heartbreaking posts about her her dying. Uh, so, you know, they got good for them to be able to keep it private and dignified and quiet and uh, and sad to see. But she had a great role on Peaky Blinders while it was there. So not so bad. But we've got emails you promised us, Sperling, didn't you? Yes, and speaking of roles, okay, uh, the emails came into dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And actually, this first email is about roles. In fact, uh, here, I'll read it. it. Was I supposed to read this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So. So, so, hey, Michael and Sperling, uh, last week you guys were talking about why Daniel Kaluuya was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar rather than Best Actor. You suggested that Lakeith Stanfield, who plays the Judas of the story, was the true lead actor since he is the one with the true character arc. You would hardly know that from the advertising for the movie. The television spots, for instance, prominently feature Kaluuya. But Stanfield is in just two seconds of a 30-second spot. I did notice that myself over the weekend, actually. Now, Warner Brothers definitely campaigned to have Stanfield nominated as a lead actor and Kaluuya as supporting actor in hopes they wouldn't both be in the same category and cancel each other out. Academy voters don't have to go along with how a studio campaigns, though. One example of that is how Kate Winslet was nominated for and won an Oscar for Best Actress for the Reader after campaigning as a supporting actress. There are many other examples. This year, the reverse is true. Stanfield campaigned as the lead actor, like Kaluuya, was nominated for Best Supporting. According to the Academy voters, Judas and the Black Messiah is a movie with no lead at all. Jennifer H. in Los Angeles. Well, there are movies without lead actors, like maybe The Trial of the Chicago 7. I think that's a film where it's an ensemble piece, and perhaps there's no one dominant role. The Reader, who the heck is not the lead in The Reader, if not Kate Winslet? And Lakeith Stanfield, he is the star of Judas and the Black Messiah. He's in the movie from the beginning to the end. It's his story, his role, his character. He dominates in screen time. Daniel Kaluuya, I, I still think, is a, is a valid supporting actor that you can make an argument he's co-lead, but I think he's perfectly reasonable. Why the Academy voters put Lakeith into supporting, I have no idea, but that's that's just bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> As for who's going to win it, uh, I don't know. Uh, Paul Racy or Racy in Sound of Metal, the deaf counselor, he's so good in that movie. That's like a once-in-a-lifetime role, but you could see Sasha Baron Cohen getting nominated or Daniel for Judas and the Black Messiah. They're probably the front runners, but Paul Racy, I wouldn't count him out for Sound of Metal. But boy, that is a silly nomination for Lakeith. The well, you know, terrific, I, I, terrific I, talent. But when this email came in, I, I kind of did a quick Google search, and there are a number of posts talking about how the way Academy voters work it, or, or nominate, they can vote for certain actors in a category, and it's the top five vote getters. So Lakeith Stanfield may have been like you know number six or seven in Best Actor, uh, which and he may have had more votes 
for best a best actor nomination than he got for best supporting actor. But in the end, the best supporting actor he he was in the top five. So right, but no, nobody should have voted him for best supporting. Usually, the Academy voters are rejecting some nonsense by a studio, which is ah, oh, we'll pretend this person is supporting because we know they have a better shot of winning. They're like, no, 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 that's a lead or the opposite. So in this case, they are rejecting the common sense, reasonable choice that Lakeith is a lead actor in that movie and making him supporting. It makes no sense. And thank you, Jennifer, for writing in. I really appreciate it. Great to hear from you. Well, do you want to read the, our next email? That's right. It is from James Gardner, longtime listener, often commentating. We appreciate feedback from everybody. Uh, he says, hello, Michael and Sperling. I found your comments on private cinema very interesting in the last episode. It does raise a few questions I'd like to elaborate on for the U.S. market. Backstory. Private cinema is huge in China and in some smaller, less Hollywood-centric countries, i.e. in the European Union. This is predominantly because they have access to date of release content, mainly of locally produced films that are not distributed under the studio policy and term models. In general, private cinema has not taken off in Hollywood-dominated markets due to the business models surrounding the policy requirements. For example, to take a film, you have to agree to play it so many times per day, and you've got to pay a significant minimum guarantee. Private cinema is equivalent to streaming to a degree as you're doing on-demand screenings. If you're doing films on-demand, policy cannot work as you're not in a position to know how many times you're going to play a film. Therefore, for private cinema to work as a business model, this policy must be abolished. This would dramatically change the landscape as policy is specifically used to discourage cinemas operating near other cinemas, or in general, ensure cinemas that you do compete and as such remove the motivation to reduce ticket prices. I'd be very surprised if the studios allowed this, however, with the industry changing so much, the era of large Emerald Palace cinemas may be over. Shorter windows and date of release streaming greatly reduces content shelf life in a cinema. We may, and in my mind should, see an era of smaller but prolific cinemas. For example, one large coffee shop in each suburb or a coffee shop on every corner. Under which model do you expect more coffee to be consumed? If there's just one big coffee shop or one everywhere you turn? Under which model of cinemas do you expect more films to be seen? Smaller cinemas everywhere you turn or just the big ones every once in a while. Regards, James Gardner. So to put that in context, private cinemas are where you see in countries like China. It's kind of a glorified screening room. You take your friends, you go to a room, you rent the room, and you say, we want to watch this movie. And they show you a new or recent release that's available to them, like, say, Hi, Mom. And then you sit with your friends in a private screening room. We saw in the release of God Kong versus Godzilla something similar happening because you've got all these empty theaters. People were renting out theater spaces for private screenings. They pay $300 and get access to the smallest, you know, theater space in a complex and they could bring however many people they wanted to watch a movie. And then they of course buy popcorn and soda and the companies make money that way. Same way with private screening rooms. James says, you know what, if that's going to happen, we're going to see some changes in policy. And he thinks it might be a good idea because he thinks maybe you'll get more people going to the movies if they can, have the flexibility of all these private screenings. What do you think, Sperling? Well, I I think here's the difference between coffee and a commodity uh, and and movies, which are not a commodity, right? So Uh you could say one large coffee shop in each suburb or a coffee shop in every corner, but the coffee that you get there will be the exact same as the coffee that you get at home. And, you know... Well, depending on the quality, whatever, but yeah. People think that they're getting better quality when they go to a coffee shop sometimes, you know. And you're saying that the movie is exclusive and unique. It's not a generic Correct. item that you can buy anywhere else. So right. how does that affect your analysis of what he's talking about? 
I think that you, uh, would, what would be great is if you could have the coffee in a coffee shop first, and then no, no, no. If if you're saying you've got Xing Chi is coming out, do you think it's better to have these exclusive giant movie cinemas? Or do you think Hollywood might get more people going back to the movies if there were lots of smaller little nimble cinemas where they could go with their friends and rent a room and watch the movie? Do you think that's a, a possible wave of the future? I think it is. And I think uh, it's the best of both worlds. You know, there will be cinemas that are like IMAX that are huge and, you know, you get the big experience. And then there will be those for, you know, the, the girls night out, 12 people sitting in a, a plush uh, screening room. We haven't had a girls night out in ages, have we? Yes. No, no, not at all. As a matter it, of fact, it, I haven't been out in ages. So that's <laughs> it, it's been too long. But thank you very much, James and Jennifer, for writing in. Everybody else, please do the same. It is the end of the show, isn't it, Sperling? Yes, uh, it is the end of the show, and I would like to thank, um, and I'm going to try and get it right this time, okay? So I would like to thank our guest, Porn Sock Pishishout. I got it wrong again. Porn Sock Pishishout. Yes? Did I get it Close. right? Por- porn Sock, I think. Did he say sock? Porn Sock Pishishout. There you oh, go. Maybe God, I'm getting closer. Closer. Okay, well, I'd like to thank Porn Sock for joining us. To talk about his book, his book, his comic book, his series, his comic series, The Good Asian, which we will place links to again in our show notes. In fact, you can find our show notes and all the ways to subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can find us, rate and review us on those podcast aggregators. It does help us out when you do that. All of this information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's show, as well as those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. As well as, you know, you can call and leave us a voicemail. One of these days, we will play a voicemail on our program, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7278. Six three at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like us on Facebook. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gills has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? It's thegoodasian.com. And dude, Porn sack. It's available. You need to snap that up. It's like available at GoDaddy. So you need to buy the Good Asian and maybe the Good Asian, the TV show and Good Asian movie right now. So hopefully by the time you people hear this, it won't be available. If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week. Play nice.